Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Josh and Amy. I am delighted to have you with me today as my guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I, uh, as you and I have, as the three of us have gotten to know each other a little bit here in just a few minutes, we've, um, you know, we've had a little bit of trouble getting this scheduled. You guys are on the road. I'm on the road. Um, but I had the pleasure of reading your book uh, in between uh, during a trip to, out to California. Really enjoyed it. I'm really delighted to have you both on the podcast with me today. Rather than a big idea, bold opinion, we're just going to take the your book is the lead on that. That's usually what we discuss. That's the direction we're going to go. And I've got some uh, some notes here that I think will make for some meaningful conversation. But before we dive into that, how about I just ask the two of you to introduce yourself? Go ahead, Josh. <laughs> all right. All right. I'll start it off. First of all, thank you, Jason. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I'm Josh Burkholz. I'm currently the CEO of PWF. I'm also a chair of the board of the Giving USA Foundation at present. And um, I, a lot of my background was in the data sciences. An early book was fundraising analytics. And now I'm just super pleased to have uh, written what I just love in this book, Benefactors, with my good friend and colleague, Amy Lampy. Hi, Amy Lampy, uh, Associate Vice President at BWF. But prior to uh, BWF. I uh, was a career fundraiser, uh, mainly in the performing arts and the theater. Uh, also spent some time in healthcare and education. Very passionate about fundraising and uh, excited to have uh, done this project with Josh. Well, so, you became a colleague because of this book, too. Like, that's we, true. We were consultant and practitioner. It was kind of fun to become friends throughout the process. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, so before we dive into the book, as I was reading it, Amy and Josh, as, as I was reading the book, I was trying to figure out, I, in fact, I was looking at my notes this morning while I was drinking my first cup of coffee. I was thinking, who amongst the, of the two of these individuals would, would I most enjoy raising money with? Because there were several points. <laughs> there were several points. And I thought, because I'm a really big advocate for team-based fundraising, I learned yeah. more. I learned more about raising money in the field with for example, when I was in Washington with my boss, you know, tag teaming uh, these scenarios. And I thought, and I'm not going to tell you because I think I've got a sense that, and after the conversation today, I think I've, uh, I might even have a better sense. Uh, but I have sort of got this conclusion about who of the two of you I would most enjoy raising money with. But I wanted to ask the two of you before we dive into your book, have the two of you done much fundraising together? Have you actually been out in the field with a major donor together? Well, I, I'll start first of all by saying I'm glad that the first word you talked about was enjoy fundraising together. 
Right. I don't mean to, to to deviate right away into a big provocative idea, but it is sort of your show and kind of your thing. But um, that's kind of the point of the book is that this should be fun. Fundraising yeah. should have purpose. It yeah. should have meaning. And um, I've, I have this perspective that, and please let me defend it, holding people accountable is really not that effective. And that's a really strange thing to say. Accountability used to be personal responsibility, like how you make sure that you're doing the right thing. And it kind of moved into bosses making sure people did their jobs. Holding people accountable was because your job must suck. You know, like dieting or being at the gym or making your kid clean your room, you need to hold them accountable. But if it's something with meaning and with its purpose uh, that brings you joy, you don't have to be held accountable. Your accountability just flows because this is so much fun. So enjoying it is actually the really key word in what you said. First of all, uh, we've, uh, Amy's actually done much more field fundraising than I have. I've certainly um, asked for uh, $5 million plus gifts and, and closed those gifts, but Amy did it as a full-time job. I've done it uh, as a consultant in the last 18, 19 years. Go ahead, Amy. I'll let you talk about actual experience. I'm the well, theoretician here. <laughs> with uh, when I would lead teams, I actually would would tell my teams, "You guys, we're going to put the fun back in fundraising," because I think you know after all these decades, we've we have created this modern enterprise, but uh, sometimes we forget that why we got into this in the first place, why we landed into this in the first place, and um, I, I guess the the closest to fundraising together that we've we've done is is actually uh, when we we really first met of introducing fundraising analytics to the arts and culture space. So what was exciting was creating that innovative idea. Fundraising analytics uh, existed thanks to, to Josh's book and, and leadership in that space. Um, the arts and culture uh, fundraising enterprise uh, existed, but it was merging that together and introducing this new idea that that became innovative. And so, uh, you know, we're just working with those arts and culture organizations and and um, closing those those gifts of these projects of helping them identify new major donors, um, and then being able to use that technology to indeed close some major gifts. Using the science to inform the art was probably really most exciting for me uh, being able to say, mm-hmm. wait, this donor has that, that, that scientific um, identification of being a major donor. I'm going to just call them and meet with them for breakfast. And we met and she doubled her gift on the spot. So like that, you know, being able that, that marriage of, of science and, and art um, that, that has probably been, you know, the most, the most exciting use of closing a gift utilizing fundraising analytics. Yeah. So let's, um, so I, like I said, I read your book on the way to, uh, out to San Jose for, uh, some, to spend some time with a client. And I actually honestly think that I immediately, when I got there, I was making reference to your book as soon as I sat down with my client for lunch or okay. dinner. Um, so, uh, so if that's a, that should certainly come as a, as an immediate compliment for the sake of my listeners, just to remind everyone before we dive into Amy and Josh's book, Benefactors, Why Some Fundraising Professionals Always Succeed, published by Wiley. Um, I have certainly enjoyed the book and we're going to dive into it today. Josh and Amy, I think the first thing that I really appreciated right here in the introduction, you make this statement, you say donors let it donors let us in through locked doors to their finances, their values, their family, and their deepest passions. I thought that was a very profound and very timely sort of statement to make. And I think the use of the term locked doors was probably what grabbed me the most, because I think in today's you know space where oftentimes philanthropists are oftentimes being criticized and attacked for the decisions that they're making, for example, they're very much inclined to lock their doors. I mean, they're, they're double bolting it. They're putting, you know, they're building up, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm reminded of like lame is or something, you know, they're, they're sort of building up walls so that they don't get attacked. Um, <laughs> is, is that really what it is? And perhaps some of us in the fundraising space, you know, as fundraisers just really need to recognize that that's really what we do. We sort of break down those walls. We unlock those doors, isn't it? Absolutely. I have to say, uh, with my theater background, I absolutely love your Les Mis reference. Right. I wanna, you have to hold me back because both Josh and I are classically trained singers. So many times, True. you know, you have to hold me back from actually breaking into song. Right. Uh, <laughs> do you hear the people say, you know, so or on my own? I, yeah. So, so I'll hold, I'll hold, hold back. But, um, but um, anyway, yes, I, I, 
I completely agree. It's that authenticity that makes our work special, that makes it not sales, um, that makes it about connecting people with their passion. So, um, you know, I have friends out external to philanthropy that say, how do you raise money? There is no way I could raise money. And I said, I don't raise money. I connect people with their philanthropic dreams, with their philanthropic passions. And otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this uh, you know, th- this, this, I wouldn't be in this position. So, and in this industry. So the, the fact that there's that ki- connection and that, that this is missional work is what is most important to me. You know, from the donor perspective, it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you're a wealthy person right. and you don't give, you're going to get reamed over TikTok, social media around not being philanthropic. If you do give, you're going to get reamed over power dynamics and you shouldn't choose which problems get solved. And it's a tough spot to be in. And we've got this like this whole cultural shift in philanthropy, at least in the U.S., and I think it's it's broader than that. And I remember um, talking with Jane Wales of the Generosity Commission, where she pointed out how much our focus has been on instrumentality and giving, which is what we've all been preaching. Talk about the impact. What will this give do? We give so that something happens that we might be losing the intrinsic value of just giving. Giving is a good thing to do. Giving makes you feel good. Like giving your, your kid a gift at holidays or at their birthday or whatever is a good feeling and giving to charity is a good thing. And I think that um, when I've worked with billionaires, high net worth philanthropists, and I've worked with a fair number of the Giving Pledge folks, where they're often criticized for the power dynamics, what I'm actually realizing is they kind of want credit more than they want control. They'll Mm -hmm. often start out like, and maybe that's ego. I'm sure it is. I mean, you don't get to be a billionaire with a little bit of healthy ego, maybe some unhealthy ego, but we could hold that for a different uh, podcast perhaps. But at the same time, it's like, I've worked so hard. I've raised all this money. I want to do something important and I want to get credit for trying to do something important. And if I'm not getting that credit, it's so quick that that manifests it's taking control. I think a lot of nonprofits by just like bringing the donors in, letting them be part of your mission, not someone who gives to your mission so that you can do good stuff, but they're doing good stuff through you, reminding them that it has impact. Even the $50 donor is meaningful. Like in other, like we figured out in voting that each vote matters, maybe in the environment, think global, act local, but in fundraising, we've not really figured out how $50 really matters. And I think we're missing out on something that's part of the same discussion of, uh, of what's going through the head of the billionaires. Why should I give? Is the purpose really the so that, or is it just a good thing to do? Is it a value? Um, let's jump ahead, uh, sort of uh, reflecting on, Amy, your comment a few minutes ago. I want to jump ahead to your comment about being friends with our donors, because I re- that really resonated with me. I owned that right with you. Um, I haven't found it. I haven't found myself capable, and I've raised or you know money for organizations of large and small sizes. We've been in the same community even since I left my last employer. Now we've been here for fifteen years, and I've continued to be engaged not only with that organization but with the donors, and continued to sort of play a role in some of those relationships. But I, I, I sort of concur with your comment that you make, Amy. Um, and, and for my listeners' sake, uh, Josh and Amy sort of swing back and forth between how they wrote the book. And so I, I think I've been able to pretty accurately pick up on whose voice I was listening to when. But I, I really I really find that to be true, uh, Amy, that, 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 yeah, we become friends with these people. Are, are we, am I right? Well, you're, con- you're connecting at the heart. You're connecting at the soul of, of why they're involved with the organization. And so for me in particular – um, choosing to have a career in the theater is something incredibly passionate for me and and my family, actually. It's, it's a family activity. We were um, just at a ragtime benefit concert last night. I'm, I'm calling from New York with with my husband on his birthday. So I shout out to my husband for letting me do a podcast. Happy on his birthday. birthday. Happy yeah. birthday, PJ. Happy birthday, PJ. <laughs> but um, but um, all this say, you know, these these were donors where theater is something incredibly passionate for them. And they still have remained my friends. And even though I don't solicit as a consultant, um, these folks remain people that I um, go to lunch with that I, I see at the theater and um, there is a connection to the heart. And so I think, I think when we talk about donors as being friends, we have to differentiate you bringing a friend as a donor to an institution and you becoming friends with your donors and having that commonality while you are a fundraiser and that your connection is as when you were a fundraiser at the institution. I think the the danger that we run is if we are, we bring a friend to an institution and then we leave as a fundraiser and that friend leaves with us. 
um, after you leave the institution. But um, I think there are some, if you're going to be authentic and you are going to connect with your donors in a meaningful way, I think it actually is hard, probably one of the hardest things once you leave an institution. And that's something that I think we as fundraisers really have to think about before we jump from one position to the next position is what is that doing to our donors? What are the, what is that doing for that connection that we are, we are that lifeline many times to the institution for our donors? You know, Amy, it's reminding me when we were looking, I think it was a, a large children's hospital that we were working with. Um, and we noticed that, uh, we were trying to study resiliency when people stopped giving. What was causing them to stop, especially during economic downturns, recessions, inflation situations that we're, we find ourselves in now. And the top predictor of resilience is that they were friends with two or three other donors. And I'm wondering if maybe one of our uh, ways we can be purposeful of that, because you're 100% right. I learned something new from Amy every day. I'm like, wow, that's spot on, um, is maybe like, one of the keys is to help your donors become friends with other donors because we know from the data that that'll keep them with an institution. So I'm not just creating a relationship between me and you. I'm also creating a relationship between organization and you, but even more importantly is sideways you and other donors, because then that joint connection, uh, individuals maybe can't scale, but communities can scale. And if they're friends with each other, that's strong ties that might help weather some of our turnover. But the, the other question is, why are you working there if you want to leave? I know it seems like a weird thing to say, but we've also found if, if you don't, if you are not in the headspace where you could give the same gift, if you had the resource of the donor, they'll see right through that and they won't give the gift. Um, an effective fundraiser believes in everything that they're asking for. They would do, the, uh, do it themselves. And maybe that's the connection that causes that friendship. If you're an authentic, I would guess an inauthentic fundraiser is not making friends with the donors. Yeah, Josh, I think you're right. I think the biggest legacy that we can give uh, to some of our donors before leaving an institution is to connect them with each other so that they have that that commonality. And and that help would actually help with donor retention. Yeah, there's a research. You, you remind me of a researcher. Uh, he wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago uh, called Change. Uh, he's at Penn and uh, and he talks about the uh, the importance of social interaction. And, and as I was reading the book, I kept thinking, oh, this is essentially what we do in capital campaigns if we do them really well, is we create this sort of these, in some ways we create these, uh, what in our firm we call them waves. We create these waves of social interaction among comp, you know peer, uh, donors who essentially share mm-hmm. similar commitments to the organization. You know, the conversations sort of sitting on this chapter because all of your all your chapters are themed around a, a, a particular point that the two of you wanted to make. And Josh, I think this is your voice where you're talking about authenticity and you say you're referring to some, uh, some findings that you all have found in terms of your research and you describe a donor who says, I believe this fundraiser would give the same gift if they had my money. And I found that particularly profound because it reminds me of Jane Austen's work where she describes um, early 20th century reformer who's basically describing that philanthropy should be very much like citizen work where we, where those of us on each side of the exchange essentially are at one point or another sort of playing both roles that we're largely, you know, it's common work, right? I mean, at some point or another, we probably all find ways to give and we all find ways to receive. And I just felt like that's what was resonating in that research that you're referring to there, Josh. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit more about that that research or that yeah, story? Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was sort of a iterative research because what it started out was we were doing a talent retention study because we were trying to figure out how, why do fundraisers stick around. And we had um, we researched, it was about 10 universities. We had about 1,000 fundraisers from those 10 user universities. So they're pretty big universities. But uh, we also had the performance data for each one of those fundraisers. They didn't know that. They thought they were just doing a retention survey. Uh, one of the questions was, what do you like most about your job? Rank from one to 10. And we had 10 different things like flexibility, the people I work with, the mission of the organization, my pay, you know, lots of different things. And we found in this study, first of all, there was a Pareto principle. About 20% of these fundraisers were raising about 80% of the dollars of the collective whole. And that top 20%, had the mission of the organization as the top number one or two reason they love their job. And it was about a six for the bottom 80%. It was the biggest difference. Now at the time we were trying to come up with metrics because we can sell metrics as a consulting firm. Here's a new secret sauce to help you raise more money. And what we found out is none of the data mattered as much as that personal belief and mission, actually exposing the donors to the mission 
more or the fundraisers to the mission, cultivating your fundraisers was as effective as uh, cultivating the the donors themselves. So that led us to start asking that question. And we did it at three institutions originally, first in feasibility studies, then through surveys. And we said, imagine this fundraiser that calls on you. Do you think they would give the same gift you just gave your last gift if they had your resources? And we saw yeses and we saw noes. And we looked at the fundraisers that mostly got yeses versus noes. And we saw another Pareto principle at these institutions. The ones where that was said yes about we're raising four to five times more money, the, roughly the same 80%. And we were like, this is the most, I mean, I'm a statistician. To see something that compelling is rare. You sometimes get a little bit of lift, but this was like blowing away everything. Oh, how many times do you visit? How many ask? Nothing. Do you believe that this gift is of value? You'd give that gift yourself. Do you believe in this mission and the why of it? Uh, that's the most effective way to be a great fundraiser. And we've seen that in, in data. I, I heard Amy earlier mention it's like the art and the science. I actually don't see the difference. I, and maybe that's because I'm an artist. Like a great artist is so committed to their craft, they're scientists right. about their craft. Great fundraisers, the same thing. They're always looking at how can I do this a little bit better than before because it matters. I, I want to make beautiful art. And beautiful art is that exchange between two humans to do something really amazing. The um to to sort of uh, perhaps continue to reflect on some of that research that you referred to and Josh I think this is mostly some of the content that you contributed to the book um you in the yeah. chapter about confidence you talk about solicitation levels and and again referring I mean immediately to the to the engagement the consulting engagement that I was flying out to to the West Coast yep. I, one of my conversations that week was just about developing these two I'm working with these two gift officers at a at a Catholic school and we're teaching them how to you know have confidence to sit at the lunch table and to do those first interactions that you guys talk about in the book. But I think you describe here that um, there's a, there's some statistics here and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure I uh, quote them correctly, but you talk about just the way in which um, development officers uh, uh, Josh, I'll let you, perhaps either of you can yeah, sort of speak I'm, to that. Yeah. You, you know, your own book, but it's the idea that those, <laughs> those who sort of deliver on that, um, who dare to ask and dare to ask big is kind of the way I read that um, are yeah, the ones that, who are bringing home the most levels of support. That, that was my section. I'll speak to it uh, and then let Amy fill in the, the sure. gaps on that one. It's, it's absolutely true. The, the top performing fundraisers tended to ask right at about the capacity level. If they had a research office, right. what that level was, was their tip of solicitation. Uh, the others, uh, it was around 40, 50%. And when we talked one-on-one -on -one with the fundraisers in interviews, the language choices were different. The top perform, well, the, let's say the lower performing fundraisers, and I'm just using general terms here, would often say, well, on paper, this person looks like a million-dollar donor. And then you'd hear some phrase like, I bet we could get a $50,000 gift out of the gates, or I'll bet we could get, or some sort of a, what do we think we can get? The top performing fundraisers never use that phrase. But we'd hear them say things like, well, if on paper they could give a million, I always think like, well, what would it take for them to give us a million? So it was a slightly different thing. But it also, the us was key. Because there was some aspect of it's not just self-esteem when it comes to boldness. It's adopting the organization's esteem. Does this organization deserve to ask this person a million dollars? Does this mission deserve to ask? You'll see that in obvious places. Like, let's say Harvard or Stanford. We're easy to pick on them because they're big. They raise lots of money. But it's easy as a fundraiser to say, oh, yeah, Harvard can ask for $50 million. That's what people at Harvard do. So you're adopting that organizational esteem. Like you yourself are probably not comfortable doing that without being connected. So I think the boldness in asking is directly tied to what you believe about the esteem of the organization and the mission you're raising money for. And that leads you like right out of the gates that um, this mission is worth the ask of their capacity. And so what if I'm wrong? So, Amy, I, 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 that was my level take on it, but you've actually done it. So let, let, let's let you talk about it. Well, I think it, it all ties together. It's that authenticity. You believe you as a fundraiser believe in the mission. And so, I, you know, as I'm um, coaching or mentoring new fundraisers to the field or those that are midfield and just getting burned out and saying, how do I continue? I say, find that organization that you are connected to that you believe in. Do not fundraise by any means. Do not fundraise for any organization you don't believe in. Go and find that 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 mission, and um, the and 
that authenticity, that connection with that mission will help you do the rest of the work. But um, truly that boldness, I think part, part of it for me is the fact that I'm, um, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. So I'm glass is always half full. And so I just always. sort of, just, <laughs> so I just sort of go into the conversation saying, I know you're going to do this because we both believe in this work. So why not? And it's going to be so much fun. So I think that's, it's, it's really coming from that perspective. Don't be your worst critic. I think a lot of times that fear and fundraising comes from our own self doubt and, and being able to overcome that and say, no, I, I belong in this room with this donor. Um, I'm here. I have a reason. I this is a calling for me. This is a passion for me, and um, and and this do, I, I'm here to provide that deeper connection to the institution. And why not? And and honestly, I don't know if I've ever really gotten a no from a donor in that way. It's been like, okay, not now. Just check back with me. We have got to figure out some finances. But I just keep going. I don't even consider a no a no. And <laughs> and maybe that's the optimist in me, but I just keep going. I was like, well, so you're staying, there's still hope. There really is still hope. So um, I, that's how I approach uh, fundraising and frankly, life. So I just, you know, it's that authentic, so bringing, bringing your authentic self to that. And that also helps you overcome that, that fear of fundraising and knowing that you belong in that room you belong uh, to to make that ask with that donor. You are that connection to the institution and that elevation of our craft. Yeah, um, Wait, you, you, I, I go yeah, I got to reflect with Amy for a minute here. Yeah, because, yeah, please do, <laughs> Amy. Amy, you make this reference to mentoring in the uh, in the advocacy chapter, and I'm going to share a little bit about my own experiences. So I have to say, I have probably and, and anybody who's a regular listener has heard me say this, but I think both on the giving and receiving side, when it comes to the the colleagues that I've worked with out in the field or my major donors that I've interacted with across the lunch table, I've learned more from women than I've learned from the fellas. Um, and I could not overlook the fact that in your list of mentors, I'm guessing, I mean, you, you, you give us their names, Amy, Dorothy, and, uh, and Julie. Um, Amy, are women just better at this on both sides of the table? Because I honestly, for a guy like me, I have no shame. My guests have heard I me. Mean, my listeners have heard me say this. I've learned more from women when it comes to this work than I've heard, ha- got, you know, from fellas like Josh. What do you think, so, Amy? It's, 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 a, it's a great question. Um, I have to say, you know, Josh has been a huge advocate for me in my career and many times sees beyond my own potential that I feel. I mean, the book is this perfect example. He's like, well, you should do this book with me. And I said, what are you talking about? I've never written a book. And so I think when it comes to mentorship from men and in the, in the connection I've had with Josh, he's, he's been that visionary to say, yes, you can do this. And then sort of chart that vision so I can, I can see it for myself. When it comes to, to women mentorship, it's that power of connection. And so when I see, you know, and I talk about that peer-to-peer mentorship. I have a lot of men, uh, peer mentors in my life. Greg Robertson at Houston Greater Opera is one of, one of them. And then there's, but there's, there's women that I'm currently mentoring right now. Um, so having that, that mentor-mentee um, opportunity, but then all, also looking to see where do you want to chart ahead? Who is that person that you admire that you maybe would want in boldness to say, would you consider mentoring me? Um, and, and I think it's very rarely that I turn down a, a mentor, uh, a mentee. And just because I, I see that power and um, sometimes it happens organically on the job. The, the examples I gave in the book were, were on the job mentees and mentors. Um, but I, I think when it comes to women, there's that, there is that power of connection of seeing um, how relationship capital translates into growing and nurturing of future fundraisers, um, but but also have been you know benefited from some wonderful peer mentors and mentors like Josh um, that can cast a vision and say yes no you can do this. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the reason I'm in fundraising is a woman named Mary Hicks at the University of Minnesota. I was just a grad student. Uh, I was doing arts management because I, like, I was an undergrad music degree major, and, and I figured I need to learn fundraising if I'm going to be a good arts manager and so forth. So I got an internship writing a fundraising marketing plan for the music department at the University of Minnesota. And I'm there delivering it as a grad student, and Mary's head of fundraising for the college that, that oversaw music, I think the liberal arts school for the University of Minnesota. and I'm doing my presentation and I thought it was pretty good, but I was a grad student. It was probably awful. <laughs> Who knows? Like at the time I felt I was doing good work, but she pulled me aside. She's like, Josh, your future's in fundraising. You don't know it yet, but I see it so clearly. Here's what's going to happen. Not like, would you like to? She said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to work for me. And if you find something better, leave. That's the exact words she said. You're mm-hmm. going to work for me. And if you find something better, leave. Mm-hmm. I worked with her and uh, I still, we share a birthday, May 1st, and we get together on our birthdays. So it's coming up here uh, pretty soon. I'm really excited to um, to keep up that relationship. But uh, she's the one who stuck out her neck for me. And we all have those people. We can all say, here's, the, here's a person that furthered me and, and helped me make a step that I didn't even see because it was a dark room. Josh, I, I think this is your language. You use the term uh, "relentless alignment." Is that your term? Is that am I right, or is that Amy's term? Or do, I think that might have been Amy. Oh, maybe that's Amy. We, we work together on that. One. <laughs> that so uh, somebody's describing their uh, as a parent. I love to give my children's gifts. You're describing gift giving. One of you is. Yep. Um, and uh, and what I really appreciated about that might have been me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you can both own it. It's your book. <laughs> but um, what I what I found particularly profound about this particular section, and this is a good lead into some of the other thoughts that I want to reflect on. Uh, but you but but you talk about this idea of relentless alignment, and you're talking about that alignment between us and the donor, which I I have spent a lot of time familiarizing myself over the last couple of years about the difference between the exchange of gifts versus the exchange of commodities. And in the in the commodity exchange, we're often trying trying to create that alignment between ourselves and the products that we're buying. So it's like my relationship with my mm-hmm. damn iPhone or the computer that I'm sitting in front of, for example. But but I think I think that term and I and I'm always looking for language that I can use and and, and write about myself, but the idea of relentless alignment Alignment aligns with gift theory in that it says, you know, what we're really trying to get right before we do any kind of exchanging is get that relationship right. And you say here as a gift giver, I want to know what my children really want. I may even ask them directly when you say, just give me money. I'm a little disappointed. You know, it's that intentionality. It's that relentless sort of drive to get the conversation right. And I just don't think and this this also harkens us back to some of you both you know you're writing earlier about the discover the importance of these discovery conversations if we're not having these conversations with donors where we get that alignment so right where we're so invested in the relationship that's where these relationships gets botched up that's where these gifts go south that's where we get all disappointed in the work am i right i i think so i think there's some fear on the organization side, we were talking about the power dynamic a little bit earlier with the high net worth donors and the organization's willingness. How much are we going to change for the donor versus hold our ground? And usually the answer is if it's enough money, I'll change a little bit. And if it's a lot of money, maybe I'll change a little bit more. But there's always some sort of level. And we see this like if you're buying a house and you can afford this size house, you're going to go to a realtor and they're going to give you the best options of what you're interested in for that price point. There, But you're not going to get everything you want in a house, probably if your price points at a certain level. So the realtor's job is to align your interests Uh with what's the best thing to meet those interests within the money you have. Like a major gift officer here, this person can maybe give a $50,000 gift. They care about accessibility for students. There's this great accessibility fund. I think it's a perfect fit for you, that type of thing. Once we're getting to the higher levels, I want to design and craft my dream home. How far are you willing to go. And so there is a power dynamic in there. So there is a relentless alignment that seems to be trickier. It's, it's, it's sort of like this, uh, you're calibrating with their gift level. Um, I, I don't mean to reduce it down to that. This is all mechanics because there's no question about it. The, it starts with that discovery. Are they already aligned to this mission? Yeah. What is the reason for their giving? What do they care passionately about? Can we provide value to this donor 
through their engagement with this mission that they already care about in a philanthropic way? And what's the most alignment and value that they can get at that gift level? I mean, you're, you're anxious to say something way better. Right? You always do. That's why I started this time. <laughs> well, I love the book, The Five Love Languages uh-huh. by Gary Chapman. And if you yeah. haven't read it, I oh, highly... All his husbands have had to. Not I know. <laughs> So when you said gift giving, I was just thinking that's my husband's love language to to me and my my our our two girls, and so um, I I I really love using this not only with donors to understand you know how do they best receive love and appreciation when it comes to stewardship. Um, So utilize that in a a major gift from a major gift perspective, Um, but also. and not and not underestimating the power of words. I'm a, I'm a words of affirmation person myself, and so you know every little thank you note I've been given to someone. I keep, you know I've been given. I keep. Yeah. I just have drawers yeah. of thank you notes. I don't yeah. know. But it's just that feeling. Um, but I, I just think it also translates for for um, each other. We're in this talent crisis, and how you know how can we treat our fellow? fundraising professionals like major gift donors? How can we actually utilize love languages and understanding how they give and receive love? Even if, if you have a difficult boss, which we've, you know, we, we've all had in the past, um, how do you know, are, are there ways that you can, we can actually look at, well, what is maybe their love language in a way that I can pour into them to, um, find some common ground, um, and then have that honest conversation of, listen, this is how I feel appreciated. And you don't have to use the word love. Like, here's my love language boss, you know, but <laughs> might be a little awkward. There, there's, but- <laughs> a- a- Amy, there's, Amy, there's always sort of these aha moments. One of the benefits I get of these conversations is I sort of get to like, wow, that's a pretty profound thought. But the idea that, uh, because I'm very familiar with the love languages, I was raised in the church, the evangelical church sounds like a, all three of us perhaps to, in some ways were. Yep, yep. Um, yes. And um, and I read that, it, that's that's sort of interwoven throughout your book as well. Um, but the idea of sort of the the interrelationship between a gift giver, someone who gives gifts and the person who rece- you know gives words of affirmation, you know, in many ways, I would have to say to reflect on that, Amy, that in some ways, that's in some cases what our donors are looking for. You know what I mean? I mean, that's sometimes what I can think of a number of donors who um, one one woman who profoundly shaped the way that I think about this particular work. Um, you know, I remember her saying to me on more than one occasion that all people are ever doing is calling for money. And what she really wanted in many ways was to hear words of affirmation that she's worth something more than what's in her checking account. You know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, that's what she in some ways was looking for. And even to this day, the role that she still plays in our community is largely that it's just this person who can write really big checks. Nobody knows her by any other sort of way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of Penelope Burke, which is probably apparent in the book as well. But through her research, there's two things, two things that donors need before they give again. And so I think we have these myths like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to ask for their renewal annually. And that's just not true. They want these two things. They want to be thanked properly and quickly, and they want to know the impact of their gift. That's it. So if we can harness that, and really look at the power of stewardship, then you can, they they will be ready to give again. And so that was a very aha moment for me when I heard her say that. Um, And I think that's, that's something we should, we should think about. Sometimes we have to drill down to the basics of of what it takes. We did a survey once of donors and a survey of fundraising professionals. And we asked them, what does this advancement office do? Um, and we said rank like the importance and we had things like raise money for the institution. Uh, we had make sure our funds are used wisely, et cetera, et cetera. And the ranking was exactly opposite. The donors, but the most important thing advancement does is how they use the gifts appropriately and then that they're managing the funds. The fundraising office said fundraising. I mean, we're on a podcast talking about fundraising. How do we get the money in? But from the donors, it's, um, it's all about the donor experience. What does it feel like to be a donor here? And we don't, I don't hear nearly as much conversation of what does it feel like to be a donor at this institution? We talk about how do we get them to give to this institution and their brain starts after the gift. Ours sort of turns off at the gift. I think that might be a problem. 
Yeah. So Josh, uh, Josh and Amy, one of the themes that's cons- that's very evident in this book, especially as uh, somebody who's raised in the evangelical church, is that you were both formed by your faith in some way or another. So um, I just want to sort of point out a couple of things. I want to tell a little bit of a story and let, let then let you uh, both sort of reflect on some um, some of your own writing here. But I did a feasibility study with a school a number of years ago in Austin, and it was uh, um, an international baccalaureate school. And about half of the interviews that I did, so you guys do feasibility studies, you know the nature of this work, Mm -hmm. about 50% of the interviews involved parents, you know, this is a private school, and they're very explicitly telling me that they're a secular school. And one of the things that I told them in their, um, the the organization in their their feasibility study report is I said, you're going to have to find in your school community where that generosity is sort of rooted, because your people are explicitly stating that they're secularists, that they don't sort of have a faith tradition with which they want to sort of let their charitable inclinations, if you will, sort of emerge from. Um, and, and I have, and I've always reflected on that as I think about sort of how we talk about generosity and philanthropy and stuff, and especially what, the way some of the conversations are going. And I oftentimes say, Josh and Amy, I say that the, that fundraising at its best is pastoral work. And it reminds me of this statement. I believe this is you speaking, Josh. You say, we're in the field of generosity. Everything we do is about giving. We teach donors. I mean, here I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the voice yeah. of almost like a pastoral discipleship type <laughs> of conversation here. Mm-hmm. We teach totally. donors how to give for the first time. We teach donors how to mature in their giving journey. We invite constituents to volunteer for campaigns, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm hearing there, Josh, is a pastoral type role. And I just don't know if that's an acknowledgement that we're making. And yet I know because I've talked about, you know, anytime that I reference, for example, Henry Nowen's little book, um, The Spirituality of Fundraising on LinkedIn or something, I just get this flood of response. And I don't think enough of us in our space right now are acknowledging this underlying sort of faith tradition. It doesn't necessarily have to be evangelical Christianity necessarily, which it is for me, but that's sort of been that doorway for a lot of us. Am I right? Absolutely. I'm a pastor's kid. So you you picked up on that pretty well and multi-generation. I mean, going back to like uh, immigration, they came into this country as pastors. So I'm breaking the, breaking the chain, but I do view there's a certain ministry aspect, but what's coming to mind too is David King of the Lake Institute over at Indiana right. um, did some research on people of faith give multiples more to secular charities than people not of faith. And that has some concerns with the decline of religiosity. And I'm not making a comment on religion, but I was trying to unpack what are some of those pieces. And in, in addition to perhaps that pastoral care, which has a degree of uh, we're taking you on a journey, similarly, we're on a giving journey. The other aspect, though, is modeled philanthropy. These kids who sat in church pews or went to their mosque or they saw their parents in their temple and so forth, they're seeing their parents give, like the proverbial offering plate coming by. They saw it once or once a week, they saw people giving money. It was a model thing. This is a thing people do. And we've seen some attempts at trying to replicate model philanthropy in the secular setting. Probably the most common is buying the little dollar at the cash register and putting a shamrock or a heart or something on the wall. That's, That's not meant for the dollar. That's meant for the kid in the shopping cart to see mom or dad or whoever buy that and, and stick that up, up on the wall. So I, I, I do think there's a, um, there is a risk in declining religiosity and its effect on giving. Is it because of faith? Maybe it might also be other factors like model philanthropy, regardless of all that religion is still the top charitable right. sector in the United States. The way they're raising money is effective. And it, Right. Makes sense if we want to be a great fundraiser. At least look what they're doing. Yeah. Well, and the quote on on my BWF profile um, is to love another person is to see the face of God. So Victor mm-hmm. Hugo, going back to your your lay Miz reference, <laughs> Jason, and honestly, literally, our profession, philanthropy, is the love of humankind. And so, if you make that connection, that philanthropy is us loving other humans. The love of another person, of another human, philanthropy is to see the face of God. So we can't we we can't underestimate the power of faith, whatever that faith is. Um, but but I, I just I think that there is that tie. There's a sense of spirituality, of fulfillment when you give a gift. Um, it's it 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 truly I I feel is a calling and um and 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 a gift, a God given gift. So I I think that uh, we have to embrace 
whatever our faith is, embrace embrace that and allow that to um, be who we are as authentic fundraisers. Yeah, I as I was because uh, I've gotten to know your firm as I've built a relationship with Bruce over the last couple of years, and as I was reading through the book, I I, I started to pick up on and, and you you both talk very specifically about some of the values that you have at BWF, um, you know, but I just couldn't help overlook the fact, you know, you reference Paul's references in First Corinthians at the beginning of the book. Um, you used, you know, you very explicitly described the, the idea that one of your values at BWF, BWF is forgiveness. I mean, the, yeah. the faith tradition, the the appreciation of a faith tradition and that the generosity and philanthropy sort of emerges from that. Um, I, I want to afford you both some time to talk a little bit about the firm here in a few minutes um, and tell us how people can reach out to you. But before we do that, Amy, I want you to help us wrap up on this because I know as I was reading this, I got a sense that you have a great deal of appreciation and concern for the talent shortage. I wrote a book a number of years ago on that particular issue. And it sounds like you and I both both might have some appreciation for the farm team system in in Major League Baseball um, because I have to agree with you and you make reference to the farm teams in in Major League Baseball and I'm thinking yeah that's exactly how we we solve this I've said that this to my some of my private school clients how do we create sort of these I don't know some sort of training program some sort of uh, um, apprenticeship program or something where we sort of raise up young fundraisers it would seem like in higher education in K through 12 um some of those spaces where we uh like even over at the local college where I teach we have young you know college students who could perhaps be trained up to be really talented gift officers in a rel- in relatively short order is that what we need do we need farm teams amy Absolutely. I think first we have to name it and claim it. So people have to actually know what development is. And then uh, we have to we have to really talk about it as being this noble, viable, really successful profession that you can have. And we have to figure out, you know, what is that selling proposition for um, recruiting? Look at what law firms do and going out and actively recruiting on college campuses. We need to be doing that if we want to elevate our field and create this farm team. Um, because, because otherwise it's catch as catch can. And it's literally, as we all did, falling into fundraising. We can no longer fall into fundraising. We have to actively recruit and um, elevate and cause awareness and and do you know do, do as much as we can to create fundraising philanthropy disciples if we're going to be able to to correct this talent crisis that just really was you know exacerbated by covid um, but we are in a fundraising crisis and we're seeing it um, across the board by recruiters calling us saying, please help me find some folks for these positions. Um, so I, I, I think um, this is a job that we all have to do together. Um, it can't just be a singular person. It can't just be recruiting firms. It can, you know, can't be hiring firms um, within philanthropy. Uh, we have to start at college campuses and actually start before Start with NCL. Start start with junior league charity work and say, do you know that actually charity is a profession and it's a mm-hmm. wonderful profession that you can land in and you can actually decide to carve a career in and um, and and really promote that as an undergraduate major. Well, I have really enjoyed this conversation. We start to lose our listeners at about 45, 50 minutes in, so I'm not going to hold on to you any longer. But one of the things I do like to let 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 uh, my guests do is when you work with a consultancy, um, I do respect the work that you all do at BWF. I've known some of your folks um, over the years, many of my regular listeners and followers on LinkedIn, I'm sure, from BWF. Um, Josh and Amy, why don't you tell us a little bit about the firm? And if somebody's, uh, one of the things I always ask folks who are in consultancies, who is the person you want to hear from. So after they uh, say pick up your book, and a reminder for my listeners, uh, the name of the book is Benefactor, Why Some Raising for some, Why Some Why Some Fundraising Professionals Always Succeed. But as consultants at BWF, who is the person that's listening to this conversation that you all want to hear from? So how do they find you and who do you want to hear from? Well maybe I'll start uh, thank you, Jason, for, for what you do. I love the consulting profession, and sometimes it gets a bad name, and sometimes it's earned it. You know, 
kind of know-it-alls coming in and being the voice of authority. But the reality is we bring a perspective that's different. We see what a lot of other places are doing. We learn from each other. We're a connector of innovation, which ultimately is two different perspectives coming together to find a new perspective. This is a, I love being on the board of the Giving Institute because it, it's a voice of collaboration between all the firms like ours. BWF, real quickly, we, are, we do campaign consulting. We do technical like CRM implementations. We're doing lots of large conversions. And we do digital and uh, um, online type fundraising, annual giving, data science, uh, AI, that type of thing. And we do all the stuff because we want to be able to actually make nonprofits better. At our root and our core is empathy. Uh, we're not trying to be the know-it-alls. We're trying to be the no difference. We're the ones that are coming in to work with you in a collaborative way. So who do we want to learn from? We don't want to come and be your heavy. We want to come and be your collaborator. So people that actually want to be better through interaction, um, we're not going to think we're better than you. We're going to work really hard to know as much as we can because we care about you. And that's the, really the core, uh, I think, of how we operate as as a firm. Um, and to that farm team, one thing that I'm really proud of is our subsidiary, First Name, has created the system of student engagement teams. It basically acknowledges, like a bad stand-up comedian, the kids don't know how to talk on the phone anymore. None of us answer the phone, but they do know how to TikTok like champs. So we started hiring students at universities to basically influencers, assigning them for portfolios of like 10,000 names that they're the voice, that person. We're blowing away the, uh, the phone-a-thons in the first year with these student influencers, every institution we put them in. And we're nurturing new fundraisers in a way that's really fun. Um, and I'm really excited about that. And Amy, who do you want to hear from? <laughs> well, I'm excited that we're celebrating our 40 years this year. Our, our, uh, our first totally. campaign was the Statue of Liberty. And um, I, I think I want to hear from people that want so a problem solved and want to want a partner and trying to figure out how to pro- solve totally. that problem. That's the, that's the part of my work that I really enjoy is I love problem solving. I love sitting with you. Like you were talking about Jason, that collaborative, I feel the future of fundraising is in collaboration. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking to collaborate and problem solve. And those are folks that I would love to hear from. Well, I have uh, I have really enjoyed this conversation. Again, for my listeners, the name of uh, Josh and Amy's book is Benefactors, Why Some Fundraising Professionals Always Succeed. We'll put some information in the show notes. Josh and Amy, it has certainly been a pleasure, and you're always welcome back. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank Love you, Jason. Back. This is great. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.